Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, it's Erica Cruz Guevara, producer for The Bay. And before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that this episode contains descriptions of death and police violence. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and you're listening to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. For months, the death of Angelo Quinto in Antioch has fueled momentum for police reform. This is a big deal, especially in a city that has resisted changes to law enforcement for a long time. But when it comes to accountability for the officers who restrained him before he died last December, Angelo's family says, so far, that process is rigged. But this hearing had no, there was a bias to the entire thing and it was all scripted. It's what it seems like anyway. And so that makes you really disappointed. Today, what accountability has looked like so far for the death of Angelo Quinto. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Sandhya, let's start with um, the big picture first. Um, What kind of impact has the death of Angelo Quinto had on the city of Antioch? Well, I think it brought the city of Antioch to the attention of a lot of people who maybe weren't paying attention before. Sandia Dirks covers race and equity for KQED. She's also one of the journalists who worked on the podcast On Our Watch, which explores the world of police discipline. Antioch was historically a white working class suburb, Um, but that has changed in the past 20 to 30 years, and it has diversified really rapidly. And that demographic shift has shown real tensions, um, and a lot of those tensions have played out around police and policing. There was this sort of confluence of all of these events happening at once, which overlapped to kind of create this real momentum um, and spotlight on the police uh, in custody death of Angelo Quinto. And that was the fact that it happened around 
you know, the kind of the, the, the furor and, and the conversation around what happened with George Floyd. There was this new sort of power structure in that you had for the first time in Antioch a majority black city council. Those two things sort of collided and created this explosive focus um, on policing and police reform in this suburb. Can you actually remind me what happened to Angelo Quinto? It was December 23rd, and Angelo Quinto's family, his mother and his sister, called police. Uh, He was having some sort of mental breakdown, and they called police because they were worried for him. Um, They were worried for themselves. They were worried for what was happening, and they called police for help. And when police showed up, they say what happened next was that police did not help the situation, but in fact, that they felt that the police officers, the way that they were holding him down, the force they were using, the knee on the neck that they say they saw, they said these are the things that led to him dying. Police disagree. They say that they were handling a difficult situation with a troubled young man who was having an episode um, uh, that was fueled by drugs. It It is, you know, one of these things where we don't totally know what happened. And the reason we don't totally know what happened is because we don't have body camera footage of what happened. Because the Antioch Police Department did not have body cameras. They were one of the few police departments in California that had not adopted that very sort of early police reform. Now, there is video because uh, Angelo's mom, Cassandra, did take video. But it's kind of at the very end of the incident. And what you really see in it is Angelo being rolled over. And you see that his eyes look sort of almost like they're bugging out of his head. His face looks bloated and there's blood um, coming down sort of around his face and his mouth. And so it's clear that something is wrong when they turn him over, that after he's had this interaction with police, something is wrong. So he died uh, a couple days later in the hospital, and it took almost a month before a a journalist um, wrote a piece that said somebody died in police custody, and then all of a sudden it became this huge deal. Now, since then, there was a week later after this announcement, another death in Antioch police custody. That was handled very differently. There was an immediate press conference, an immediate acknowledgement of what had happened. Um, so you can see even within what happened with Angelo Quinto, a beginning of the shift in the culture around transparency, that now when there is uh, an in-custody death, when somebody dies in an interaction with Antioch police, um, they are now you know, kind of making that much more public. That's not something that happened with Angelo Quinto. This culture shift is also happening in the form of policy. Can you actually tell me about what some of these reforms in Antioch are? Most recently, the city has basically gone forward with a reform that bans certain kinds of holds, police holds, that can lead to positional asphyxiation, including the knee-to-neck hold, which police, of course, say that they did not use on Angelo Quinto. The family says that they did use, but it is what was used on George Floyd. And Antioch has sort of has basically said, we're going to ban holds like this that can lead to in-custody death. They're also kind of looking for what a police review board might look like 
Also, they're not taking military gear from the government under a program that would allow them to get military-grade weapons from the government for free or for a kind of deal. They've said that they're going to refuse those things. So there's all these ways in which the city of Antioch has really been pushing on, on police reforms. Okay, so it seems like one result is more momentum in the city's attempts to reform the police department. But what about actual accountability for the officers involved in Angelo Quinto's death? One of the ways that Contra Costa County works, um, their accountability process works, is that the Contra Costa Sheriff's Department holds a coroner's inquest for every person who dies in police custody. And the point is to determine how the person died. So the jury, and it's it's a jury of of, of of people from the community, they make a decision on how the person died after hearing testimony. They have four options, homicide, suicide, they've got death from natural causes, or accidental death. Hmm. That seems like a big deal when we're talking about someone who may have died at the hands of police. It's, it is a big deal because this is the state's narrative, the state's story mm-hmm. of, of, what, of what happened. When did the inquest into Angelo Quinto's death happen, and were you there? The inquest was on a Friday, uh, August 20th. It was in Martinez, which is the seat of Contra Costa County, and I was there. I went because it's not something that can be recorded. You have to kind of be in the room to see what happens. And I wanted to understand how this decision was being made of what was the cause of Angelo Quinto's death. So it does happen in a courtroom, but it's not really a trial. There's a hearing officer who's a lawyer who sort of serves as an MC. You have the witnesses sort of called up by the hearing officer, and the hearing officer asks them questions, sort of leads them through their testimony about what happened that night. Very different than a trial where you would have, you know, cross-examination. There's nothing that has that kind of feeling. And they use the forensic pathologist's autopsy. They use witness testimony. In conjunction with this jury, they come up with, here's what happened. And the courtroom was packed. And it felt very tense. I mean, you could very clearly see on one side police officers. And on the other side, you had folks from the family wearing Justice for Angelo Quinto shirts. So it, it was very much a kind of a room divided between these two narratives. The only issue is only one of those narratives was presented in front of the jury. You have all uh, four of the police officers who were there that night. The other Antioch police officer who was involved in, in investigating what happened that night. You also had the DA's investigator who investigates sort of in parallel to the investigator from the Antioch Police Department giving his investigation into what happened. It's very skewed law enforcement. And it also included the forensic pathologist who had um, done the autopsy on Angelo Quinto, who was introducing his conclusions for the first time. Hmm. What did he then tell the jury? The forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy for Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department on uh, Angelo Quinto is named Dr. Ikechi Ogun. And he's actually a contractor. But what he did at the, at the inquest was to kind of release the county's autopsy results. And he said he found that Angelo Quinto had two prescription drugs in his system when he died. One of them was a medication used to treat seizures. The other one was a stimulant that is often prescribed to treat narcolepsy. 
really the key thing he was there to say was that he had diagnosed the cause of death. And he said that he had diagnosed it as this thing called excited delirium. Why is that notable? So it's important that we kind of understand what excited delirium is. Excited delirium is characterized by the abrupt onset of aggression, distress, um, it typically accompanies drug abuse, um, and it often results in sudden death. And that's about as much as we know about what this syndrome is, what this diagnosis is. And you have to go back around the mid-80s when you have this forensic pathologist who brings it into recognition as a cause of death. And he does so using uh, a kind of a handful of, of deaths that were also uh, associated with cocaine use. And five of those deaths were deaths at the hands of police, right? So they involved police interacting with somebody and those people dying. And so he begin, you know, begins to kind of say, excited delirium, this is this thing people are dying of. This past June, the American Medical Association basically came out and flatly said that excited delirium is not a proper medical diagnosis. Studies that have been done of the way that excited delirium has been kind of viewed as a diagnosis show that it is disproportionately used when a black person dies at the hands of police, and it is disproportionately used when the police are violently holding someone down, violently restraining someone. So people have begun to suggest, is this actually a cause of death, or is this a way to cover up police violence against particularly black and brown people? And obviously the American Medical Association thought that that maybe had some relevance, which is why they, they kind of came out and condemned it as a diagnosis. Just to give you a sense of how common it is, when George Floyd died, excited delirium was mentioned almost immediately. It was even raised in the trial. And let me give you another example, because this is in the news, because the police officers who were involved in the death of Elijah McClain mm -hmm. in Aurora, Colorado, were just uh, charged. That Elijah McClain was said to have died of excited delirium. Mm. So you get a sense of how it's been used. So why would Dr. Ogan say that in his official diagnoses? Is he credible? I mean, according to the state of California, he absolutely is credible, because all you need to be a forensic pathologist is to be a surgeon. And he he fits that criteria. And he's been doing this for a long time. This is not the first time that he has been contracted with by the county. This is not the first time that he has um, actually kind of weighed in on a death. But Dr. Akechi Ogan was not certified as a forensic pathologist by the American Board of Pathology. And that is considered a measure of kind of basic competency in the field. That doesn't have any bearing on his ability to practice and to do autopsies in the state of California. Because as I said, all you need to be is a surgeon. But what it seems to be part of the problem is that there isn't necessarily a lot of regulation around what can or cannot be used as a cause of death, one. And two, that there are different standards about who can be a forensic pathologist that makes sort of official diagnoses in a coroner's inquest. And even though there are all these problems in the excited delirium diagnosis, how important was Dr. Ogin's testimony in the coroner's inquest for Angelo Quinto? 
Well, it's very important, right? Because it's the expert telling the jury, right, this is how he died. Um, and because there is no cross-examination, because there were no witnesses to kind of call into question the veracity of excited delirium or even to question his credentials, there was no reason to doubt what he was saying. So what did the jury ultimately decide? The jury did not take very long to decide that it was um, an accidental death. There was uh, no reason to do anything but take about you know half an hour and rubber stamp his autopsy and to find that the cause of death in the case of Angelo Quinto was uh, accidental death. So what does the result of the inquest actually mean for accountability in Angelo Quinto's death? It seems like it may have been one of the first real tests of accountability for him and that like the police won. If if we're talking about whose narrative was able to come out on top, right, as the story of what happened, yes, the police won. For them, I'm sure they would say, that's what really happened. We didn't win, the truth prevailed. But this is not the only measure of accountability because the DA's office is still investigating the death of Angelo Quinto. And that means that criminal charges could be filed against these police officers. It does complicate it that it's an accidental death that does sort of push it towards one side because how do you how do you have accountability in something that's an accident? But the DA's office has a separate investigation that is not connected to um, the county uh, coroner's inquest. And of course, the civil case is ongoing. And I know Angelo's family has been very active in advocating for him since his death. What was their reaction to the inquest? They spoke at a press conference and they spoke to reporters afterwards. Um, And Robert Collins. I'm Robert Collins. I'm Angelo's stepdad. Did a lot of the talking. You know, coming into this, I I said, as an American, I expect um, that there is one law for all of us and that law be applied evenly and fairly. And uh, as a believer in a society that um, is run by rule of law, uh, this is really, uh, really disappointing because what happened in that room, and I don't know if that was a judge, I hope he's not called the judge and he's a hearing no, officer or something else, because it was not run uh, in, any way, uh, in any way that would be impartial. It was uh, about lies and confusion to confuse the jury through omission and innuendo. And often at these press conferences where they announce either kind of lawsuits or new actions or, or call for reforms, um, Robert Collins, Robert does the talking. Um, and that's because you can see how emotional uh, Cassandra, uh, Angelo's mother, is. She's often not totally able to talk, right? Because in, in these sort of public moments, she's, she's still very much grappling with grief and, and the loss of her son. It's not even been a year since he died. The thing that shocked me is just the details. You know, I had never been through an inquest before. And the fact that they ran it the way they ran it, it seems like it's just very pre-planned. There's no, um, uh, those folks, as far as I could tell, were, were reading off a script. They had practiced it a number of times. and you could see what they, they were not surprised by the jury's decision because what they present um, is very much the police officer's side of things, as we saw. The family was also upset that they were not called to testify because, you know, as, as we pointed out, they have a very different story about what happened. And that n- not only did it feel rigged to them, it also felt like it was punishing them, putting the blame on the family, putting the blame on Angelo, um, not just, you know, saying it's not the police officer's fault, but really pushing this narrative that um, that the blame lies with this dead 
young man, and his family. Sandia, when you zoom out, what does the result of this inquest say to you about the state of policing in Antioch right now? You can have a city council that is looking to police reform, that is trying to change policing in Antioch. And you can also have a system, a larger system, both in uh, the Antioch Police Department and in the State Police Department and in the Contra Costa Sheriff's Office and in the requirements and standardizations required by the state of California that proceeds very much business as usual. Police reform in Antioch, body cameras in Antioch don't change what happened to Angelo Quinto and they don't change the outcome of this coroner's inquest. So police reforms, they're happening in Antioch and it is, it is definitely changing things. But as far as accountability, I don't know that police reform actually changes or touches that system. And in fact, as somebody who has reported deeply on the police accountability system, I kind of know that police reform doesn't affect police accountability, that those two things are very, very separate. I think people talk about police reform because we're trying to understand how to grapple with a system of policing which is very clearly problematic. So reform is this very powerful idea because it can make things better, right? There's the idea that if we reform the department, we can fix things, we can fix a broken system. But I want to say that that requires the belief that policing is broken and not a different way of looking at things, which um, some folks do, which is that it's not so much broken as it is working in the way that it was set up to work, which is to protect police officers. But that doesn't mean the family doesn't feel like it's worthwhile. They do feel like raising these issues and passing them into law gives families more protection in the future, right? And also sends a message to police that what happened is not okay. And so I think that this disconnect continues between police accountability and what is possible with police reform. Sandia, thank you so much, and thank you for following this story. Thank you, Erica. Thank you for having me. Sandia says she's watching the ongoing fight for reforms led by Angelo Quinto's family. There are the measures passed at the city level, but there's also movement in the state legislature. Assembly Bill 490, or the Justice for Angelo Quinto Act of 2021, would ban law enforcement from using restraints that cut off a person's oxygen. The bill passed the state assembly and is currently being debated in the Senate. Sandia Dirks is a reporter for KQED and one of the journalists who worked on the podcast On Our Watch. This episode of The Bay was cut and produced by me, Erica Cruz Guevara. Christopher Beale scored it and added the tape. And our editor is Alan Montecilio. Special thanks as well to KQED reporter Annalise Finney, who recorded the interview with Robert Collins that you heard in this episode. The Bay is a production of your local public media station, KQED. Our podcast leadership team includes Jessica Placek, Erica Aguilar, Vinny Tong, Ethan Tovin-Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara. 
Talk to you next week. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.